Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A special retention pay authority the Justice Department used to retain certain Bureau of Prisons employees expires in a few days. This affects employees of the Federal Correctional Institution Thompson in Illinois. The result? A Christmas time pay cut of 25% for correctional officers and other employees. For more of what's going on, we turn to the president of the American Federation of Government Employees Local 4070, John Zumker. Mr. Zumker, good to have you with us. Good to talk to you today. Tell us exactly what's going on. A pay cut of 25%. This is taking you back to basically the pay you had uh, before this year long special retention authority started? Yeah, so. Thompson uh, used to be a state facility, and it was bought out by the Obama administration, and uh, Senator Durbin changed it into a, a federal prison. And the reason it got changed is the state of Illinois could not staff officers at the prison. The federal government thought that he could do a better job, and they failed. So we worked with Senator Durbin, Representative Busto, Senator Duckworth, and we got a retention bonus to retain the staff at Thompson. And, you know, we had that now for two years. It's something that the director of Bureau of Prisons can extend. It doesn't expire. It's something that she has to remove, and she chose to remove it. Now, we've lost 203 staff over the last two years. We changed our mission from a high-security prison to a low-security prison, which knocked our numbers down. But we are currently, right now, under this new mission, short 71 officers. We're authorized to have 471. We currently have 400, with another 15 leaving. That puts us right now at 84%. We'll be below 80 at the end of at the end of January. Um, so that's a big concern to us. You know, we're fighting to keep this pay because we want to keep the retention here at Thompson. We want to keep the officers here at Thompson, and we want to keep this prison open. And just a little bit of background: Thompson has been a pretty tough facility, hasn't it? Yeah. So they we used to be called a special management unit, which they took all the bad actors, which were very disruptive inmates, and put them all at one location. And that was at Thompson, Illinois, in the special management unit. So that got shut down um, last year, and we got converted into a low-security prison. Now, keep in mind, we're a maximum security lockdown prison, and they're trying to convert it into a low-security prison. We don't have programming space. Um, That's the one thing that we're trying to fight with this director is to make this a program-friendly place, and she's fighting us. She's not giving us the tools that we need to be successful, and then she got our retention bonus. So it, it just doesn't make any sense why she did that. We've reached out to her office. She refuses to respond to us. We've reached out to her director. He refuses to respond to us. And the National Union has also reached out, and they have not got a response on this either. So it, it doesn't make sense. You know, we just want to know why. If we keep losing staff over and over and over again, we've never had full, been fully staffed, and we're struggling to retain staff. Your solution to the problem is to cut the pay by 25% and add a 1,000 new inmates. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's where we're trying to get the politicians behind us to say, hey, Senator Durbin, you brought this prison to Illinois and you're letting this director shut this place down. What I mean by shut it down, if you don't have staff, you can't keep this place open. By the way, the person we're speaking about is Colette Peters, who was appointed by President Biden to take over. I think she came in from Oregon and has been on the show actually some months back. Let me ask you this. During the period that this pay bonus was in place, did that affect the turnover? Did that keep people actually employed there? Yeah, it kept people here. It got people to transfer to Thompson because they wanted the, the higher pay. And, you know, some of the reasons we got the higher pay is we're a remote location. We're in the middle of nowhere. The uh, housing costs 
is, you know, it's high in this area rather than the surrounding areas and the childcare. There isn't childcare around here. So those are like some of the factors that we face. And then this is a hard to fill location from the state of Illinois to the federal government. So those are the reasons why we need that. Those are all fall under OPM's criteria for that. And now we're at 84% and we're going to drop below 80 and she wants to cut this. And I'll tell you this, we had Representative Warrenson, Illinois District 17, come to Thompson a couple weeks ago. The warden at Thompson told him, we need to keep this pay in place. Otherwise we will lose a lot of staff. The HR manager, same thing. We need to keep this retention pay in place or we will lose staff. The director is ignoring the boots on the ground and making a decision that she's just I don't know why it doesn't make any sense why she would do this. Like the data clearly shows we need it. If you look at the long term, you know, which when we fought for the retention, they said, hey, we like to look at it a two year graph. Well, we're looking at the data for two years and we lost 203 staff. The graph chart shows that we're heading you know, straight down. Sure. And their solution is to cut the pay. We're speaking with John Zumker. He's president of AFGE Local 4070, which represents employees of the Thompson, Illinois facility of the Bureau of Prisons. And you mentioned it's pretty remote. Are conditions at least settled down with respect to, you know, the bad guys that have been removed from there permanently? Is it at least a safer situation than it was? It's a new prison. We're the newest federal prison in the Bureau right now. So we're dealing with a lot of issues. The number one issue is we don't have programming space. You know, with this new warden, we have a new leadership in. Uh, they, re- they replaced the whole leadership team, brought new leadership in. The new leadership is actually working well with us, is working with the staff, and trying to get programs here. That's the biggest fight is we want to get programs. And when I say programs is we want to keep the inmates busy. We want to we want to keep them in programs. Like we created a welding program to give them skills so hopefully they don't come back when they get out. That's sure. the goal with the programming that we're trying to fight. But we're a maximum security prison, and they're trying to make it into a programming spot. So we need to kind of redo a lot of things, but a great example, they ordered trailers to come into the prison, but they didn't measure the trailers that the central office did, didn't measure it as programming trailers like a classroom. And now we they can't fit in the prison. They'd have to get a helicopter to bring the uh, trailers in. Uh, so they canceled <laughs> it. So we don't have building space for these new inmates coming in. And that's, again, a problem that we're raising because, again, it's an issue. We're not Our job is not to warehouse these inmates. Our job is to program them. And... That's what we're doing right now under Director Peters is just warehousing inmates here at Thompson. Yeah, where's Johnny Cash when you really need him, I guess, these days? And tell me, <laughs> the conditions there then are are boring, and I guess that can contribute to unrest or to trouble if inmates don't have something to do then, sounds like. Yeah, a great example is we had four staff go to the hospital because of drug exposure in the last uh, 40 days. Four staff were sent to the outside hospital for drug exposure at Thompson. And again, I contribute that to is programming. We want to keep, I mean, you're going to have people that will do bad things. You're not going to stop that. But if we can keep people busy, incentivize them not to do dumb things, I think that will help out. But we need the support from the director on this. And getting back to the pay issue, just give us an average of what the pay was with the bonus and what it will drop to for the, you know, on the average employee there. Uh, The average employee will take about a $16,000 pay cut. And the reason that is important is the factories pay more in the local area than it does to work in a federal prison. The state of Illinois pays more than it does to work in a federal prison. So ask yourself, why would you want to come work at Thompson when you can make more in a factory with one year in than you do right now at Thompson with the retention in place? And keep in mind these numbers that I'm giving you, the 71 short, these are all with the retention in place. December 31st is when 
she is ordering it to be removed. And I want to be very clear, it does not expire. She has lied to Congress and said our retention bonus expires. It does not expire. The policy is very clear. She has to request to remove it. So it's, it's something that she's requesting through DOJ to OPM to remove. But that's important to know that these numbers that we're talking about are pre-removing the retention. And once they remove it, we will have an exodus. Sure. And so at this point, then, it's kind of a fait accompli unless something happens at the last minute. Yes, and that's that's why we reached out. Um, we've had the support from the National Fraternal Order of Police. They put out support on that. We're working with the AFL-CIO. We're calling on Senator Durbin to fix this problem. He brought this to Thompson. This is supposed to be the most union-friendly administration. We haven't seen it. We're getting attacked on a daily basis. We've reached out to the White House. We've reached out to the Labor Secretary and asking them, you're allowing this appointed director to do this. Fix it. All right. We will reach out to that director also from our standpoint. In the meantime, John Zumker is president of AFGE Local 4070, which represents employees of the Thompson, Illinois facility of the Bureau of Prisons. Thanks so much for joining me and good luck in the new year. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many 
different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any 
technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, 
And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.